The scripture reading today comes from the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 7, verses 1 through 5. Hear the word of the Lord. Do not judge so that you may not be judged. For with the judgment you make, you will be judged. And the measure you give will be the measure you get. Why do you seek the speck in your neighbor's eye, but do not notice the log in your own eye? Or how can you say to your neighbor, let me take the speck out of your eye while the log is in your own eye. You hypocrite, first take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your neighbor's eye. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, thank you, Lydia, for reading scripture for us this morning. You know, moving to a, a new community, a new area, as many of you know, can be rather disruptive. And uh, it's disruptive because you no longer have that familiar sense of place, of people, of friends, that network. But Judith and I are so grateful to be here. In the short time that we have been here, you, the National Presbyterian Church, you have been so gracious, so hospitable, and we are grateful for that. If this is your first Sunday worshiping with us, we're glad that you're here. If you're with us online worshiping with us for the first time, we're glad that you've joined us. We're in a series of sermons that we're calling the questions that Jesus asked. Jesus asked a lot of questions, and we selected 11 of them for our summer sermon series. When I was in seminary many moons ago, I read through, not the whole book, but read through a, a fair portion of a book called The Hard Sayings of Jesus, written by Dr. Walter Kaiser and several other uh, Bible scholars. And without question, I think you will agree with me that today's question in the Bible, the text that Lydia just read for us, is one of the hard sayings of the Bible. What are we to do with it? Would you pray with me? Let us pray together. Oh God, we lift up our hearts to you. You promised that you would send the Holy Spirit to lead us into all truth, to guide us in the path that we must take. Would you come now, Lord, and do that in and through this moment of worship? This we pray in the name of your Son, Jesus. Amen. And so the scripture before us, particularly the phrase that you heard in Matthew chapter 7 and verse 1, is a text that is well-known and it is well-worn. And I think in many circles it is 
largely misunderstood. If you were to speak about reality, and there is a kind of reality that one could call moral reality, if you were to speak of reality in terms of sin, in terms of the holiness of God, in terms of the human predicament, right and wrong, in today's culture, I think you risk being criticized and labeled as being out of step or morally superior or intolerant. A few years ago, Natasha Crane wrote a very helpful book, a little book called Faithfully Different. And I think she accurately captures the mood of the culture in which we find ourselves. And she says, we are in a culture where feelings are the ultimate guide, where happiness is the ultimate goal, judging is the ultimate sin. And she says, God, in our time today, is the ultimate guess. Some of you may remember the provocative book written several years ago called Unchristian. What a new generation really thinks about Christianity, written by who, the fellow who is now the CEO of, uh, of that research group, David Kinneman and Gabe Lyons. The book researches the, the religious views of non-Christian 20-somethings. And according to Barner Research, Gen Zers perceive Christians to be judgmental. And here's a brief quote from their book. Nearly nine out of 10 young outsiders said that the term judgmental accurately describes present-day Christianity. Just to put this in practical terms, when you introduce yourself to a 20-something neighbor and you mention your faith, chances are he or she will think of you and me as judgmental. Now, I think that's being judgmental to say that about us. <laughs> Christians may not be judgmental, but that is the perception people in our time largely have of the church. And because no one wants to be labeled intolerant, no one wants to be labeled judgmental or unloving, what are Christians for the large part doing? They're putting their hands over their ears. They're putting their hands over their mouths. They're putting their hands over their eyes. They're seeing no evil. They're speaking no evil. And they're hearing no evil. And they're choosing not to engage with the challenges of the day. They live and let live. And my question to you this morning is, is this the way Jesus calls us to be in the world? Is there a way to avoid judging others while we can speak the truth, we can engage with the challenges of our day with humility and love? Is that possible? And then what exactly did Jesus mean when he said, do not judge? The verb to judge or crino can be used in two different ways. Sometimes 
judge is used to speak of judging between two things. Judgment as discerning or differentiating between ideas and choices. But this kind of judgment, this sense of discernment is not what Jesus forbids. In fact, I would offer to you that our lives would descend into chaos if we didn't exercise that ability to judge and to discern our choices and our direction. New Testament scholar F.F. F. Bruce explains it this way. He says, judgment is an ambiguous word. In Greek, as in English, it may mean <clears throat> exercising proper discernment, or it may mean sitting in judgment on people or even condemning them. We're not asked to surrender the judgment of discernment. However, I think what we're being asked to do is not make final judgments on anyone nor speak assuredly of people's real character nor to pretend that we know God's verdict on other people's lives. Judgment as condemning or making statements about someone's destiny, I believe, is closer to Jesus' words in the reading that we just heard. There are some who think that God has appointed them to be judge and jury. There are some who have a doctorate in judging. Their spiritual gift is to tell you how to live. Judgment as condemnation is what Jesus prohibits. And he makes it all the more clear when you read the rest of the passage and you're welcome to turn to that page or turn to that book in, in Matthew chapter 7 where Jesus says, do not judge so that you may not be judged. For with the judgment you make, you will be judged, and the measure you give will be measured to you. It's the measure that you will get. And when I read that, I thought to myself, now who is the one that will judge us? Who is the one that will measure us and weigh us and examine us? And the only person that I know of who is 100% qualified to do that without making a single mistake is Creator God. And so Jesus is not calling us to condemn people. He's not calling us to pass final judgment on people or to declare people as irretrievably lost. I think this becomes clearer, though, once we understand the context into which Jesus was speaking. When you think about the entire culture, and culture is everything, right? Culture is everything. When you think about the culture of first century Judea, it was predicated on the notion that some people were acceptable and others were not. The way you defined yourself, the way you defined your identity and your place in the world was by contrasting yourself with others. For example, at the time of first century Jews, First century Jews saw themselves as inherently better or more acceptable to God than non-Jews. In fact, in that culture, they referred to Gentiles as dogs, 
as less than human. And I'm sure the Gentiles had their nomenclature for first century Jews. Certain judgments occurred even within first century Jewish culture. Rich people were seen as more blessed and acceptable to God than poor people. The healthy were seen as righteous. And those who had diseases and disabilities, blindness, leprosy, they were judged to be sinners. And that's why this, these terrible things are happening to them. This went so far that first century Jewish culture even constructed an elaborate social hierarchy to determine who was in and who was out, who could worship God and who could not. And they believed that certain people were inherently more valuable than others, that some were literally subhuman and could be treated as such. Sadly, this is not a problem of first century, second century cultures. This is a, a human problem. It's a human race problem. And I'm grateful to God that I'm standing here today before you because there was a time when people who looked like me in various places in the world would not be able to stand in a place like this. And so I push back on the notion that the church is judgmental in the sense in which Jesus forbids it. Have we been that way? Of course. But here in National Presbyterian Church, we want to bear witness to the culture that the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ is alive and well in this congregation, and you are seen, and you are known, and you are loved, and you belong. Why does Jesus forbid this kind of behavior? Let me suggest a few reasons why. One reason, it's because we are fallen. We are fallible human beings. We're not God, and we are fallen. And because of what we read in the Scriptures, Romans 3 and verse 23, all have sinned and fall short. We're always coming up short of the glory of God. Because of all those reasons, you and I are not qualified to stand in judgment on our fellow human beings. But the second reason why I think Jesus forbids this behavior, it's because we are blind. He forbids it because we are blind, and in our blindness, guilty as charged, we have this fatal tendency to exaggerate the faults of others. And what do we do? We minimize the gravity of our own. We have a rosy view of ourselves. We have a jaundiced view of our neighbor. We have 20-20 vision on other people's weaknesses, but we cannot see myopically. We cannot see the massive issues that are present in our lives. This week, I read about a young couple who moved into a new neighborhood. 
And the next morning while they were eating breakfast, the wife, the young woman, looks out her window and sees her neighbor hanging the day's wash on the line. And the young woman said, that laundry is not clean. They don't know how to wash correctly. Perhaps they need better laundry soap. Her husband looked on, remained silent. Every time her neighbor would hang the wash to dry, the young woman would make the same derogatory comments. About a month later, the woman, though, was surprised to see nice, clean, washed clothes on the line. And she said to her husband, Honey, look, they finally learned how to wash correctly. I wonder who taught them. And the husband spoke up this time and he said, I got up early this morning and I cleaned our windows. <laughs> I cleaned our windows. And so it is with life. What we see when watching others depends on the, the purity through which we look. And so before we give any criticisms, before we get on our high horse, it's a good idea to look at ourselves and ask ourselves if we are truly ready to see the good rather than to look for something in the person we're about to judge. But another reason why Jesus forbids this kind of behavior, we're fallen, we're blind, but the other reason why he forbids it it's because it's harmful to building community. We just celebrated 50 years of membership for brothers and sisters here at this church. And if we allow our congregation to devolve into this kind of behavior, it will be harmful for our community. When people in any community, not just the church, feel judged, feel criticized, what do they do? They withdraw. In your family, if that's what you're doing, you'll find that the people in your family will withdraw. They will act out in different ways. They will withdraw from our churches. They will stop attending the services. And this kind of alienation destroys community. And the church becomes unwelcoming. So there is a truth in what our young adults are saying because you've heard the stories, I've heard the stories of the ways in which churches have manipulated, abused, used, and harmed people. There is some truth to that. That kind of spirit is harmful to community building. Notice Matthew 7 and verse 5. Jesus says, you hypocrite. First, take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your neighbor's eye. And so of all the sins in the world, God calls us to be concerned about only one before any other, and that is our own. And once we have removed our log, we can then help another person to remove their speck. Just as God, our Heavenly Father, who exists eternally as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit live in eternal love and community, we also are created, we are invited to be in community with God and to be in community with each other. When Jesus called us, he called us to relationships, 
not a life of isolation. When Jesus called us to follow him, he sent us to be with people. And that's why Jesus forbids hypocritical, fault-finding. But he does expect us, though, to be accountable to each other. He does expect us, and this is where it gets very difficult, because we cannot control how folks will hear us, see us, and respond to us when we humbly and lovingly help them remove what might be the speck in their eyes. It's difficult because we all have blind spots. And there are things about me I can't see that you can see. And there are things about you that you can't see that others can see. And that's why we need each other. And this is not a time for us to see no evil, hear no evil, speak no evil, just to sit on the sidelines and watch people's lives and their struggles. This is a time for us as the body of Christ to engage with each other because we need each other. Charles Haddon Spurgeon said it well. He said, I pray you have a friend or friends who tell you your faults, or better still, and this is hard, to welcome an enemy, a critic, who will watch over you keenly and will speak up when you're going off course. I pray you have friends or critics in your life who do that for you. So how do we hold these two expectations where we're dealing definitely with the log that's in our eye and we're removing them, but at the same time, we're helping our neighbor remove the speck. How do we hold these two things in tension? And I would suggest to you the following ways. Number one, we have to keep the gospel, the good news of the gospel before us. And in the good news of the gospel, we hear these words, if you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, Lord, who could stand? If God kept a record of our wrongs, Ephesians 2 and verse 8 says, For by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, and that's the nature of the gospel. If we keep the gospel in view, we see our sins, we see our flaws, we see our failures first, but then we also see the superabundant grace unmerited grace and love and mercy of God. The gospel reminds us that despite our brokenness, despite our imperfections, there is this loving heavenly Father who forgives us when we genuinely repent and seek reconciliation. Keep the gospel in view. And when you keep the gospel in view, you are reminded of that season in your life when you walked around with a blog in your eye. You remember those days, and it does something to you. It humbles you. Galatians 6 and verse 1, Paul says, My friends, if someone is detected in a transgression, you who have received the Spirit should restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness. Why? Because we remember when we once stumbled. We remember what it felt like to have that log in your eye and someone, by the grace of God, helped you to remove it. And so you take care 
how you relate to others. That's what the gospel does. Fills us with empathy. Fills us with gentleness, with patience, and with courage. And then lastly, we remember God's love. God's love. That love is patient. It's kind. It's not boastful. It's not arrogant. It doesn't insist on its own way. It's not irritable. It's not resentful. Bishop Robert, Bishop Robert Barron, who is the, 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 the bishop of the Diocese of Rochester, Minnesota, is somebody that I listen to. He's a Catholic theologian, but he says so many helpful things. And this is what he said about love. He says, love is a great act of the will. It's a great act of the will. It's when one desires the good of another, not for one's own sake, but for theirs. Love. In our staff meeting two weeks ago, Pastor Donna Marsh shared the devotional that morning. It was uplifting. It was hopeful. It helped, it helped all of us. It was a quote from Eugene Peterson's Living the Message. And this is the quote she shared with us. God creates in ways past finding out, with energy and beauty exceeding anything we have eyes and ears for. Nothing that we encounter from birth to burial merely is. It is the marvelous result of God's making. There is a verb behind every noun, the first verb in cosmos and scripture. That word, that verb is create. God saves in ways past finding out with a persistence and wisdom exceeding anything we can understand. And so no person we meet from the beginning we open our eyes in the morning until we shut them in sleep at night. No person is finished. No person is finished. God is not finished with you. God is not finished with your neighbor. God is not finished with your enemy. God is not finished with National Presbyterian Church. So hold back on the judgment, hold back on the condemnation, and pour out loads of mercy and loads of grace and loads of love, always remembering that I'm just a sinner saved by grace. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and God's people say. Amen. A little quiet on that amen. God's people say. Amen. amen. I believe it. That's what the word amen means. I agree. Would you pray with me? And so, Heavenly Father, we give you thanks for these reminders. We are so quick to speak and so slow to listen and so quick to anger. And we pray that you will forgive us, O oh God, for forgetting that we also have a log. Forgive us, O oh God, for focusing on others and calling them out when in fact we have the same or worse challenges. Lord, help us as a congregation to be light in this 
place that you have called us to, the National Presbyterian Church, and to this community. We pray this in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen.